We're in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 this morning, and we are continuing our focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ as told through the acts of his apostles, his authoritative messengers. And where we are in the story is that Jesus is enthroned, he's ascended on high to heaven, he has poured out his spirit, and now we're in the process of of watching as his followers enact and extend the visibility of his kingdom over all the earth. Here in this early stage, Luke tells us what it means for the church to be the church. We've been camped out here for a little bit. We'll stay uh, this week, and then next week we'll start Advent, another series for the next four weeks. Hear now the Word of God from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Luke writes, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word to us this morning. We do pray that your word as it goes out, Lord, that it would find fertile ground in our own hearts and souls. We pray, Father, that that you would seal your word upon us that we might know what it means to be the children of the living God. Give us more of your, yourself now, we pray, more of our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, more of your Son, your treasure. Amen. So the many important things that are going on in this passage in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, one of them is this very ordinary activity of sharing a meal together. Twice you'll see it in the passage, the mention of the breaking of bread together. I realize that that sort of image might be fresh in your own mind, maybe plaguing your own body still right now as we recover from Thanksgiving. If you enjoyed a traditional Thanksgiving meal with turkey and all, then, um, then you were not moving along in the tradition of the pilgrims. Um, they did not have turkey. I don't know if you knew that, and I hate to sort of rain on your parade this morning, but the only account that we have from the original Thanksgiving meal in 1621, there was no turkey. If you had turkey this morning, you are a statistic. 52 million turkeys estimated were consumed this year on Thanksgiving Day in America. We did our part at my house, okay? And although the percentage of households in America, the percentage of households that that eat together, eat a home-cooked meal together, is on the decline, it is still estimated that Americans on average spend just over an hour on Thanksgiving preparing the meal, about an hour and 15 minutes eating the meal, about two hours talking to each other, socializing, three hours, this surprised me, three hours playing sports, and then for the win, four hours watching TV, or as we call it in our house, napping while the Cowboys game is on. The way that we arrange our feast, the way that we share a meal, the way that we coordinate the way that we even eat, 
uh, tells a lot about, uh, reveals a lot about us, doesn't it? It tells something about who we are, uh, what we value, whom we love. The way that we eat and drink can also speak about our moral commitments. In World War II, there was a famous village in France named Les Chambon. Les Chambon. The village was a Christian village. And between the years of 1940 and 1944, the entire village opened their homes and their schools and their churches to strangers, most of whom were Jewish men, women, children who were fleeing Nazi persecution. It's estimated that, that, that 5,000 refugees, Jewish refugees, were saved because of the hospitality of this village in those critical years. Those 5,000 men, women, and children weren't just sort of stuffed in back houses, put under floorboards until the war was over. They were made to share in the daily life of the town. They ate at the tables of the citizens. Um, they took part in their festivities. They, they joined them in all that they did. They were strangers, and yet they were treated with equal dignity as the town citizens. Magda Trokme was the wife of the local pastor. Pastor Trokme was frequently arrested and detained by the Nazis, questioned over and over again. When she reflected on her choices years after the war, she said this, when people read about our story, I want them to know simply this, I tried to open my door. I tried to tell people to come in, to come in. In the end, after all this is summarized, I'd like to say to people, remember that in your life there will be lots of circumstances where you will need a kind of courage, a kind of courage. Now take note, the courage that she's talking about here is not courage on the field of battle, it is courage in the dining room. It is courage in our living rooms. It is courage in the way that we eat, the way that we welcome people, strangers, even into our lives. The way that we eat and drink, the way that we feast, says something also about our moral commitments, about our ethics, does it not? If a meal can say that much, if a meal can be that revealing, that challenging, even that formational, then it shouldn't surprise us that, that eating and drinking is on the very short list of what the early church was committed to doing regularly as they got together. But if we take a moment to think about it, it might surprise us when compared with the other three things that are mentioned here in Acts 2, 42 through 43. You just look down at your, your handout this morning. You'll notice that, that two of the things that Luke mentions, the apostles' teaching and the prayers, are distinctly religious activities. You would expect any religious com community to be, to be dedicated to teaching and to praying. One of the others, the fellowship, means a common gathering. A common gathering, which is inevitable for any community if you, if you do CrossFit, if you're part of a choir, any choir, if you collect butterflies in a club, if you suffer as the fan of a sports team, then there is a common sharing, there is a fellowship that is inevitable with any community. But of the four things that are mentioned here this morning, it's the eating and drinking that is so unnecessary. It is and essential. Seemingly, you could, you could jettison the eating and drinking part of the passage and do the other three activities and be very devoted to Jesus Christ. Well, not according to the early church. 
In the early church, the table was a primary means of grace. An activity in our lives that is often used as a means of survival, right? Sometimes a means of indulgence, means of doing business, a means of social stratification, even a means of personal escape. For the early church, it was a means of grace, an activity that they did in which they saw God holding out to them his unmerited favor. The radical love and mercy of Jesus Christ given to them and also extended to those beyond their own fellowship. So what was that? How did eating and drinking become a means of grace, a means of God's favor? And how does it remain so for us this morning? Well, let me just explain for a moment what was going on in the early church. So Bible scholars agree that that what Luke describes here are common meals that are shared by Christians, and mostly in their homes because the home is where people gathered, where Christians gathered when they weren't in the temples or the synagogues. And the name here, the breaking of bread, you see it twice here in in, uh, Acts 2. The breaking of bread comes from how the Jewish tradition initiated the meal. Whoever the host was, the host would would stand up and he would take bread and he would break it apart and then he would offer thanks to God. In that sense, every time that that a Jewish young man or a Jewish young lady or or, um, a devout Jew sat down, every meal was a meal of thanksgiving. It was thanksgiving, every meal. It was the Eucharist. Uh, The Eucharist is is a Greek word for thanksgiving, for praise. You can see it here in Luke 2. Every meal afforded an opportunity to thank God for his kindness and to do as Luke tells us, to receive food with glad and generous hearts and praise to God. At the most basic level, the eating and drinking together became a means of grace because we are called in our eating and drinking to receive the food as a gift. Not primarily as something we've earned through our own hands, our own work, or even our own resources, but something that God has given us to sustain life in us. It is a moment to pause and to thank God as our provider. But these early meals were were so much more for the early church. The early church was committed to the apostles' teaching, and they would have known that it was at a meal. It was through a meal. It was in a meal that Jesus, their king, chose to disclose who he really was and what he had come to do. And so the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus, as the host, celebrated the Jewish meal that was above any other meal, the Passover meal. And at that meal, Jesus, as a good Jewish host, took bread and he broke the bread and he gave thanks. And then he did this. He gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body given for you. Eat. And they ate. They ate bread in the presence of Jesus and they ate the presence of Jesus in their bread. And then after the supper, in the same way, he took the cup saying, my blood, the blood of the new covenant, this is poured out for you. And so drink. And they did. They drank. They drank the death of Jesus and the presence of Jesus, their living host. And so it was at that table 
It was at that table, at a table, that the early church, the early disciples, drank and tasted the gospel for themselves. They drank in their Savior. They drank of his kingdom. They learned in that simple activity what it meant to be called and loved and shaped by him. Now, was every meal in the early church, whenever they gathered, what we now call the Lord's Supper? And the answer is no. Some were like, you know, Wednesday night potlucks at the church or brunches after worship. But without a doubt, it was the Lord's Supper that taught Christians how to eat and to drink on every other occasion. It was that meal that that taught them how something as secular and ordinary and bodily became for them an opportunity to enact and to extend the kingdom of God. And to be sure, eating and drinking had always been connected with God's kingdom in their past. It was always connected with what God was doing, his work. But now in Jesus the King, eating and drinking took on a whole new meaning in the church. Let me give you one example from the life of King David as an illustration this morning of what it meant to eat and drink in the kingdom. 2 Samuel 9, we'll close here this morning. In between David's military victories, in between chapter 8 and chapter 10, which is where chapter 9 would fall, chapter 8 and 10 are about the military victories, okay, and we find there right before 11, which is where David encounters Bathsheba when things start to go downhill. In chapter 9, David is at the very height of his powers. His kingdom is, things are good. Things are going as well as they could. And in this particular chapter, the whole chapter is given to David searching for someone who is still alive from the line of Saul. And the only person that David can find, the only person left from the house of Saul is a a grandson of Saul named Mephibosheth. That's hard to say, Mephibosheth. What the narrator is clear on with Mephibosheth, and he says it at least two times, maybe three, is that Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. He's crippled. That means Mephibosheth couldn't work. He couldn't walk. He really wasn't fit to take up any sort of vocation in the world. He wasn't fit for a status in the world. In that culture, in an ancient world, Mephibosheth was a true outcast. He was a throwaway person. But not only that, Mephibosheth was from the line of Saul. And I don't know how much you track what, you know, how ancient dynasties work, but like the first order of business, when a new king came in, was to get rid of everyone from the lineage of the old king to prevent any internal rivalries or confusion over who was at rule in the kingdom. Not to mention, Saul tried to kill David. David lived in caves for three years because of Saul. Who is Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth, when we first meet him, is an outcast in a dilapidated cottage in a small town called Lodabar, who is on death row. And so David fetches him. He sends his men to fetch him. Can you imagine for a moment being Mephibosheth, sitting bound in your chair, days strung together without surprise or hope? And all of a sudden you hear the sound of the king's horses coming from you, and his henchmen say, the king has summoned you. Can you imagine the quickening of his heart? his own internal dialogue as he considered a verdict for which he could not escape or offer any reasonable defense. 
See, Mephibosheth would have known in that moment when he came before David that he was coming into his own judgment day. The royal guards would have laid out his broken body before David. Mephibosheth would have mustered the, the little remaining strength that he possessed to bend before the king and to throw his uncooperative body on the stony ground before him and to lay his face down in homage to David, the one who needed him dead. And in the story, you can go back and read it, David, David calls out in his regal voice, he says, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth responds as perhaps his royal training had taught him to do since childhood. He says, behold, I am your servant. Then Mephibosheth heard these three words from David's mouth. Do not fear. Do not fear. For I will show you has said covenant love kindness, mercy, for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And then David said, I will restore to you. Restore. That's the theme of Acts. The pattern of which was Jubilee, one of the great themes of Acts. I will restore. Imagine that Mephibosheth had never heard that word in relation to himself before. I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And here was the kicker. David said at the end, You will eat at my table always. You will eat at my table always. That meant that Mephibosheth was to live in the king's presence. Not as a hostage, not as a guest, not as a servant. He was to live in the king's house as a son. Perhaps never in his own family, when his grandfather ruled over the kingdom, had Mephibosheth been treated with such honor and dignity. And so for the rest of his life, the royal servants would pick up and carry the broken body of Mephibosheth to the the king's dining room three times a day. There the king would be waiting on him, and David would continue to wait as the servants positioned him in a chair that was specially fit for him. And when Mephibosheth was finally positioned just right, the feast would commence and Mephibosheth would sit there and he would share in the conversation and in the laughter and in the food and in every part of the feast because he belonged there. In the story, it says that Mephibosheth saw himself as a dead dog, as a dead dog. But now he belonged in the king's presence at the king's feast as the king's son. His true identity, his true dignity, his true worth, no longer disclosed in the lameness of his feet, but now signed and sealed every day when he came to the table. What is it that Jesus has done in this table? At this table, Jesus summons the Mephibosheths of the world to dine with him. He summons men, women, and children, all those who have been lamed by sin, all those who were once enemies of God, summons to our own day of judgment to hear these words, do not fear, for I will restore to you all that sin and shame has taken away from you, and you will eat at my table always. You see, Jesus has lifted the Mephibosheths of the world to dine with him in the king's presence at the king's feast as the king's sons. Men and women, When you come to this table this morning, Jesus hosts you. Your king hosts you. 
And it's at this table, as you are hosted by Jesus the King, that your true identity is signified and sealed. No longer lame, but loved as a son or a daughter. Is it any wonder then that early Christians, when they got together to eat, they felt not just their stomachs filled, but their souls as well? The early Christians were the heirs of all the great feast stories in the Old Testament. They saw themselves as the heirs of Mephibosheth. The heirs of the prodigal son who would come home welcomed by a father who said, kill my prized possession, kill the fatted calf. He's home. The heirs of the children of Israel who were passed over by the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. The heirs of the feast of the bridegroom when the prophet Isaiah said that God would come one day to make all things new. The early church saw themselves as the heirs of the kingdom of God. And so in their eating and drinking, even in its most casual moments, this was an opportunity to show themselves as those heirs and to invite other people to the king's feast as well. We come to the king's table this morning. We come to do the very thing that the early church did to break bread as his sons and daughters. I want you to I want to challenge you. You're going to have some time as we sit. I want to challenge you to think about your own eating habits this morning. You know, we probably eat about 21 meals a week, give or take a few, right? What if you chose a handful of those meals? What if you chose just one of those meals and said this, may the way that, that the Lord Jesus has loved me May the way that he has shaped me, may the way that he has come and sacrificed for me, may the way that he has nourished me shape the way that I coordinate and plan and invite and eat this meal. What would it look like in your ordinary eating? What would it look like an occasion for Thanksgiving, right? An occasion for Eucharist. An occasion to pause and to thank God for his provision, his kindness, his mercy. For the bread of life, who is Jesus Christ, come for us. An occasion to just to give him thanks. It would also look like an occasion for presence. You know, one of the other words that we use to describe this meal is the word communion, an occasion to be together. An occasion not to have other distractions. An occasion to put down our phones or mentally put down other things that are bothering us and to give our attention to the people who are at the table with us, whom God has brought into our lives to love. It would be an occasion for hospitality. As Magda Trochme said, for table courage. For table courage. For the courage to have strangers into our homes without thought of utility or repayment. Without a doubt, there's more. I'll let your imagination go where it needs to go. But remember, if the gospel can so reframe and sanctify and elevate something as ho-hum as eating and drinking, then can it sanctify and elevate and raise everything that we put our hands to that we consider ho-hum? Can't grace reshape everything that we do for the extending of God's kingdom? You know, it's said that Adam lost the whole world in an act of eating. He lost the whole world in one bite well, here Jesus regains that whole lost world in himself, in this meal, his life given for us. Come to the table this morning if Jesus is your king. 
Eat and drink with him. He is your host. Eat and drink with him. He is your savior. In this meal, the king rejoices to have you, you, at his table to dine in his presence. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have chosen to love us. You were not obligated to do so. And you so loved the world that you gave your own son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Lord, we pray that we would once again taste the gift this morning, not just hear about it, but come and taste it. And we do pray, God, as we are sent out to be agents of the gospel in all that we do, Lord, that you would so shape how we eat, how we drink, how we labor, how we do ordinary stuff um, to be sanctified for the kingdom of God. Would you give us a vision for that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.